This is the Blacklist Podcast, and I am one of your two hosts, Blacklist founder and CEO Franklin Leonard, joined as always. Kate Hagan, Director of Community at the Blacklist. The big sort of hit of the pandemic thus far, I suppose, feels like it was the last dance, and we are lucky to have a conversation today with the director of The Last Dance, Jason Hare. We talk a lot about Michael Jordan, a lot about the last dance season of Michael Jordan's career, and a bunch of other stuff, including Ken Burns and how you make a hit documentary while it is already a hit documentary, which is sort of a weird phenomenon, right, Kate? It's really interesting to talk to Jason about the sort of feedback loop of still working on a documentary when the beginning of the documentary has already begun airing. It's a really fascinating conversation. We asked Jason all of our burning questions about how did you pick that great soundtrack for The Last Dance and how did you get Michael Jordan to open up to you? And Jason is going to walk us through his earlier career as well, which includes some other documentaries about mythic figures and Jason's approach to portraying them as actual human beings. It's a fascinating conversation. It's really great to be able to sit down with somebody who's made the thing that everybody's talking about and ask him what that's like. So without further ado, here's me and Kate with Jason Hare. So we start every interview with the same question. Mm-hmm. What was the first movie you saw in a movie theater as a kid and like set the scene? Like, do you remember like the first time you like went to a movie theater? The first few I definitely remember. In particular, The Fox and the Hound. Okay. I saw with my mom and I remember crying because she had to explain to me that Tim, the fox's mom had died and I didn't, I didn't get it. And I remember her leaning over and saying to me like, mom died. She's, she's gone. And I remember crying in the, in the theater. That's the Disney staple though, right? You got to kill the parent off to provide meaning for the rest. I remember seeing Bambi, but I got that. I mean, that was a pretty visceral scene. So it was like, okay, I, I get what happened here. But we, we used to go to the movies all the time as a kid. So it's not like the first time for me, I don't really know because it was such a staple in my family that that was a thing that we did on almost a weekly basis. And and all my summer vacations when I was a kid, I remember going to the drive-in a lot. So that's when there would be like R-rated movies and I'm the youngest of three children, three boys. So I would have to sit in the way back and anytime nudity or violence came, they would put, tell me to put my head down. And I would put my head down <laughs> the way back and just hear everything going on in the speakers in the car, but I couldn't see. So I'd peek up over and just to, to see what was going on on the screen or sneak down there. I remember stealing candy out of the cooler that we had of all this candy we brought. So I loved it when there was a sex scene because I could le- lean down and just eat candy for a while until it was over. It was a, an ongoing thing. Sports and movies and music, that was my entire childhood. Do you remember your first R-rated movie? I feel like that's always a fun question to ask when you're one of those kids who saw sort of movies they shouldn't have been watching before their time. Yeah, I definitely saw clips because we had cable. So if my parents would go out, I would sneak onto HBO. And I remember I watched like Dirty Harry for a little bit, but I knew that I shouldn't be watching these things. So it was, I couldn't really enjoy it. The first R-rated movie I saw in the theater was Beverly Hills Cop. And that was because I pleaded with my mom. My brothers got to see it and they were 11 and 14. So they still weren't, you know, technically of age to see an R-rated movie. And I was just like an Eddie Murphy fanatic because we had gone to the drive-in and I saw Trading Places in 48 Hours as like a six-year-old. And my brothers would tape Saturday Night Live for me and I could watch it because I obviously wouldn't be up for that. But I was a fanatic of Eddie Murphy's. And so in third grade, my mom brought me to see Beverly Hills Cop with her. So I saw Fox and Hound a few years before that. And then I went with my mom again to Beverly Hills Cop. Which drive-in was it? Because you're from Massachusetts, right? Yeah, I think it was Dennis or Yarmouth. There was one in Sandwich, but I think we went to the Dennis 
Jarmuth one. It's really interesting. I feel like the drive-in, I mean, for obvious reasons, is due for a comeback. But as like a cultural phenomenon, I'm actually sort of surprised that it ever left. Like it just feel like every time I've ever been to the drive-in, I've really enjoyed it. And I feel like it's the kind of thing that like for families and other things, it's probably a really good idea. And obviously now in our sort of new world organization, I just feel like, you know, if I if I owned a, a movie theater chain, I'd be trying to own some drive-ins right now, too. Especially in the next year, because I, I don't think any of us can imagine what going to a theater is going to look like. The whole process of going to a movie, it's the rituals that, that we enjoy more than the movie itself sometimes. You know, I'm down here on vacation near Cape Cod, and what I did last night, I was Googling drive-in theaters, because my girlfriend is not from the area, and it's such a staple of my childhood here on Beach Life, was you go to the drive-in, that's just like what you go miniature golfing, you go to get ice cream, you go to the drive-in, those are like you check those boxes of a vacation. So I haven't done it forever yet because that's that's kind of disappeared. That does sound like a good summer. Were any of these movies the movie that made you fall in love with movies or was there like another experience later on where you were like, oh, I want to do that. That's the thing. Yeah, the I want to do that wasn't until later. I mean, I was in love with movies before I realized that I was just because it was such a part of my life and, and my family's life growing up. I think the lightning bolt moment for me was Pulp Fiction. I vividly remember going to see that. I was home on break for must have been Thanksgiving or Christmas um, when I was in college. And the theater was so crowded that I went with a group of friends and we couldn't sit with each other. And I just decided to sit in the back of the theater on the staircase. It was an aisle. And I sat on the staircase in the, on the back stair. And from the moment that those opening titles hit, I don't know if we can we swear on this. Yeah, we can definitely swear. Move and I'll kill every motherfucking last one of you. And they freeze it. And that, that song kicks in. I mean, that for me was, that was the lightning bolt moment. I had always thought when I was a kid, I wanted to either direct movies or be a sportscaster. I mean, it feels like, yeah, it feels like it's kind of worked out for you in both ways, kind of. Yeah. I mean, because I still have my feet heavily in the sports world, but certainly in the production and directing world as well. But that was the moment where I was like, all right, I think I might want to do this for a living. I'm curious, you know, we're talking about movie theaters and some great movie theater experiences. So we love to ask everybody about their sort of ideal movie watching setup. What is your vibe when you go to the movies? And what is your vibe when you're watching a movie at home? What's your snack situation? Do you like to go with friends by yourself? In a theater, my girlfriend and I go all the time. So I'll either I'll go with her. And I like to be on the end on the aisle because I just have anxiety issues about being trapped in the middle of a road during the movie. And I want the freedom to be able to get up and walk around if I have to. So I try to do that. I think my favorite movie going experience is by myself on a weekday with barely anybody else in the theater. There's a really cool theater near me in Battery Park City that's kind of state of the art and it's got the reclining chairs and all that, but it doesn't serve, you know, like three course meals with meatloaf and, and silverware clanking on plates and those kind of things. But it still has the comfort set up and it's empty, especially on the weekdays. There's no one there. Goldman Sachs is nearby. So there's a few guys like in suits and ties. You can tell that they're just <laughs> like ducking out for like a day. <laughs> But that's how I saw Moonlight. That's how I saw Mad Max Fury Road. Like some of my favorite movie going experiences of the last years have been in that neighborhood, in that theater. So I love the experience of just sitting in this vast, it's almost like you have a private screening, this huge Dolby surround theater. And then I can sit in the middle because I don't have to worry about getting out or anything like that. And then for home, you know, couch, feet up, dog in between me and my girlfriend on the couch. He just has his head rested on my knee, on my girlfriend's knee and where she's not a popcorn person, I am, but there's typical movie snacks involved the sour patch kids and, and gummy bears and any kind of chocolate we can get our hands on just just that and obviously being at home you can pause you can get up you can walk to the kitchen so it's, it's two vastly different experiences but i there's nothing really beats being to me being alone in the theater when those lights go down and you're 
transported into a completely different world. I, I love that feeling. It's pure magic. We're all going to get back there soon, hopefully. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Jason, can you remember the first time you saw yourself on screen, the sort of, oh, damn, that's me moment when you really identified with a movie character? I think probably Stand By Me. Gordy and Stand By Me, he's, he's the narrator. And, and at that point, I wanted to be a writer. There was this romantic notion to me of just like sitting there and you know, making your own hours and having an office in your own home and just writing books and stuff. I had no idea the tedium that's involved in that and how, how you know, just heart-wrenching it can be to try and squeeze water from the rock of your brain, for lack of a better term. But he he was the narrator of it and he was also kind of, I don't want to say that I felt ahead of my years, but I identified a lot of times with adults more than I identified with kids. And I think that has to do also with being the youngest in my family as I was always, if I wanted to hang out with my brothers, I had to act as if, you know. But we had our core group of friends, but in every group of friends, there's, you know, the kid who gets picked on, there's the kid who's got kind of like a, a messed up family background and everyone understands that. There's like the tough alpha male. And I think that I was more the Gordy character who could relate to each one of those people, but was his own person and had kind of his own path set from it. Because from an early age, this is what I wanted to do is, is what I'm doing now. Not necessarily sports documentary filmmaking, but something in the arts or something in writing or filmmaking or directing or producing. But that was the first moment I remember, like that moment's tattoo that's indelible on my memories where I saw that movie and the feeling I had when Richard Dreyfuss's voice kicked in and thinking like, all right, that's what I want to do is what that guy does in that movie. And also I want to make a movie like this. It's a perfect movie. It's one that I too come back to all the time. And I feel like it's one of those movies that sort of grows with you when you start, you know, you identify with the kids and then you identify with Richard Dreyfus, and it just hits you at all those sort of points in your life. We're going to talk about The Last Dance in a minute, but before we get there, I want to back up a step and talk about your other work. The Last Dance isn't your first look at a sports icon that's unlike what we typically see from those kind of documentaries. You've taken similarly exacting looks at folks like on Andre the Giant or the 85 Chicago Bears. But I'm curious, as you just told us that you were a huge sports fan and you aspired to be a sportscaster, I'm curious as a documentarian how you sort of balance your personal feelings and admiration of these sports figures with the level of truth and clarity you need to make an effective documentary as well. Well, I think the admiration is only enhanced the more human they become. And that's what I've always been interested in is de-iconizing these icons and making them into human beings with the same kind of faults and weaknesses. And because these are infallible people who we have made into these mythological figures oftentimes. So stripping them down and showing their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses to me makes them all the more heroic because they're still accomplishing these things on the field or on the court or in the ring. But we're finding out more about them behind the scenes and what they had to overcome. So and that goes back to when I was a kid, I was always more interested in what what these people were. Were like, I mean, I had posters of everybody on my wall. Being from Boston, it was Roger Clemens and Larry Bird, and of course, Jordan. Everyone had Jordan posters. But I was really interested in what they were like away from the game. We used to go and drive by Larry Bird's house just to try and see him mowing his lawn. I was so fascinated with like, what? how is this guy a normal person? What does he do in normal life? What does he wear? Does he go to the supermarket? So I was always fascinated with the human side of these otherwise mythological people. Speaking of which, I read a story online, and I just got to ask if it's true or not. Is it true that you tracked down Doug Flutie's college dorm room and basically, as a kid, knocked on the door and was like, hi, 
what's up? And then they, they, they gave you pizza. That's, a, like, <laughs> that's exactly right. That's a good example that I didn't even think of. My mom worked at BC when Doug Flutie was at his height of, you know, mythological status. I was yeah. Doug Flutie for Halloween that year. That shows you like what a hero of mine he was. Right. And so about four or five weeks later, he threw the, the legendary pass to Gerard Phelan, the Hail Mary. And the Monday or Tuesday after that pass was thrown, which was the Friday of Thanksgiving, my mom forgot something in the office that night and asked me if I wanted to go to her office and get whatever she was getting with her. And I love going over to BC because that's where I wanted to go to school. And I just love being on campus and feeling, you know, older than myself and feeling like I belonged in that world. So she was doing something in her office and the student handbook is, or the student phone book is called The Source. And I looked up, uh, went to the apps and looked up Flutie and it was Darren Flutie, who was a freshman, Doug's brother at that point, and Doug Flutie. And it said his address on campus, and then it had a four-digit extension. So I picked up the phone at my mom's secretary's desk and just dialed his extension, and he picked up. And I said, uh, my name's Jason Hare. My mom works at BC up in McElroy. I'm with her right now. Do you mind if I come to your place and get your autograph from my brothers as a, as a Christmas gift? Because I needed a reason to go down there and not just... Yeah, I mean, and how old are you at this point? I was eight. This is my favorite story ever. That's great. <laughs> what? And then, and then he was like, yeah, come on by. Yeah, come on by. And um, he came to the door and he was wearing the same thing that he had worn on Good Morning America that morning, which I watched. So I was like, oh, my God, like, this is he exists. He's real. Right. Do I remember he was choking on pizza. He was hitting himself in the back. I was like, oh, my God, Doug Flutie, not only have I met him, he's going to drop dead on top of me right now. <laughs> <laughs> and he let me in and he was eating pizza with Gerard Phelan, who was his roommate, the guy who caught the pass and a few other guys from the football team. And I was there for a solid half hour, but I would not let my mom go with me to the door. So she started getting really nervous and she got out of the car and started looking for me. It was this, this row of townhouses, this, this like community of townhouses called the Mods, short from the modular homes at BC. So my mom's looking for me in this maze of houses. I finish up with Flutie, go back. Like I was sprinting back to the car. I was so excited to tell my mom what happened. And I get back and she's not there. And I'm eight years old. I'm thinking like someone kidnapped my mom. It went from the happiest moment of my life to the scariest. But yeah, that, that's a good example of, you know, I saw him throw that pass, but I knew that there was a Doug Flutie there under those pads. And I wanted to know like, where does he live? What does he eat for dinner? It turns out pepperoni pizza, which I didn't like, but I just ate because Doug Flutie offered me pizza. So I mean, yeah, fair. It's like, how have you ended up? I mean, look, some of these things I imagine, like, for example, the Jordan thing, it's like whether or not it was your dream subject, you're going to say yes to that because it, like who says no to that? How have you chosen some of these other subjects? Because I feel like they are all very specifically, like you said, iconic that are in need of demystification as an audience member, whether it's the Fab Five or the 85 Bear. Like, like how, do, how do you choose your subject matter for these docs? Or do you just kind of let the letter come to you? The demystification is a good way to put it. A couple of examples. So for Fab Five, I got a phone call from a really good friend of mine named Aaron Cohen, who wrote Jalen Rose's book with Jalen. And he was in the process of just starting to write that book. And he said, hey, would you, he called me. I was in line at the Whole Foods in West Hollywood when I lived in L.A. And I had no job at that point. I had just finished a project. I forget what it was, but I was just waiting for my next thing to come along. It was like 11 a.m. on a Wednesday. He said, hey, would you ever be interested in um, talking to Jalen Rose about a Fab Five documentary? And I wasn't a Jalen Rose guy. I remember it like I knew that team very, very well because that's I was 13 or 14 when they were coming up. Yeah. But I just thought he was cocky and arrogant. And I remember the Jalen from Michigan and I knew he had a prolific NBA career, but he wasn't yet the Jalen Rose in the media that he is now. 
Right. There was definitely a transition there, for sure. Weber was far ahead of him in the media at that point. But, of course, I wasn't going to say no. This is one of the, this is probably the most indelible college team of my youth. So... And you were also a college basketball player, as I recall. No, no, no. I, I played baseball at, at Williams College. Ah, got it. That was bad writing in that article. It wasn't clear. I knew you played a college sport. I thought it was basketball because of a weird, like, apostrophe, like a weird comma in that sentence. No, Never I, mind. I, I would have, uh, if they needed someone with no right hand whatsoever who could jump a little bit and, and do very little else, a streaky jump shooter with no off hands, that was your guy. <laughs> hey, you know, you know, I mean, it's Williams. You never know. They were really good, actually. They, they, were they really? They won a national title when I was there. They have, for oh, okay. D3, they have the best D3 sports program in, in the country. Overall, literally, I know nothing at all. So anyways, I went to that meeting with Jalen and immediately we hit it off. And all we talked about, it was 10% like the fat, how the Fab Five changed the fashion of kids in high school, like white kids in the suburbs like me who had shorts that were like three inches right. long, like marathon runner shorts that we were pulling. Mm-hmm. We were wearing bike shorts so we could pull those down to our hamstrings and have the shorts come down lower. But the other 90% of the conversation was golden era, old school hip hop and who we liked and, and you know who our favorites were and listing like what kind of songs would make sense in a documentary like that. And that's all we talked about. So the meeting went over like a half hour and there was another guy coming in after me, I remember. And I thought like, well, we didn't talk about the film at all. So that, I guess I'm not going to do it, but that was a cool experience to talk to Jalen Rose and whatever. I was halfway home and Jalen called me in the car and said, do you want to do this? So I said, yes. And in the course of making that, that's where the demystification came in and showing that the darker side to this and, and the racist letters that they received that the coaches gave us access to. I'll never forget that moment when, when because everyone was very reluctant. I was an outsider, obviously. I'm not a Michigan guy. I have no affiliation with them whatsoever. So those home videos, when they show the kids in Italy, when they went on the Europe trip, mm-hmm. they didn't want to give me those because they thought I might misuse them. There's some stuff in there that if people take out of context. It's just kids being kids. They're 18 or 19 right. years old, but they didn't want to yeah. give me those. They certainly didn't want to give me access to the actual letters with the death threats and all that. So that was an exercise in cultivating trust not just with the players, but with the coaching staff and everyone who cared about these kids so much, who are now grown men, but they were kids back then. So it really gave me, it was a good lesson in how long it actually takes to gain the trust and how you have to demonstrate not only a mastery of the subject, but also some humanity that you want to tell all sides of this story, which is a tricky line to, to it's a tightrope to walk because you're not going in there saying, we're going to tell it however you want to tell it. Uh, I'm just going to kiss your ass right. the entire time and let you write your own story. But if you come in there and say, you can't have anything to do with telling it, it's my story to tell, then obviously that's going to be off-putting as well. So that was kind of like a learn-on-the-job experience. That was the first long-featured doc that I had done. We only had, it normally takes, I tell people, about a year from the inception of the idea to the research, to the shooting, to the editing, to notes process and finishing. It takes about a year per hour in my experience Mm -hmm. for for an archival doc. And we did a two-hour doc in four months. It took years off my life because we thought it was going to be due in December. And they said, can you do it for March instead? And it was like, wow. You got to have that for March Madness, though, obviously. Yeah, it was my, but it was. It was also my first shot at doing a 30 for 30. I had pitched 30 for 30s before, but they wanted 30 spike leads. And I was Jason Hare, who no one could even say my last name when I came in to pitch that. And I was just an AP at HBO at the time. So I was happy just to have the opportunity. If they said this is due next week, I would have found out a way to finish it. Now, it's interesting, though, you bring up this point about sort of like gaining trust and balancing ultimately what amounts to like multiple collaborators on telling a story that, that you know everybody's going to be watching and everyone's going to have an opinion about. And we'll use this as a pivot to the last dance because like talk about going from the minors to the majors in terms of that transition. Like the stakeholders in this doc 
obviously there's Jordan, but you've got the NBA, the Chicago Bulls organization, you know, basketball fans generally, each of the individual people who are being profiled in it. How did you even approach that balancing act? Like, again, I think it's a trust thing, but like walk us through how you even like thought about moving into that doc and telling that story with so many substantial stakeholders who, you know, if they didn't like what you were doing, could easily have just shut the whole thing down. And that that almost happened several times over the course of the last two and a half years. Normally, you're answering to one entity. And if you're lucky enough to be doing something for an HBO or an ESPN, then it's a potentially billion dollar entity. But there's only one, you know, set of parents that you're reporting to. This was four entities, and all of them were multi-billion dollars, and all of them are very used to getting their own way. And all of them also had their own, I don't want to say agenda, because that's used in a pejorative context a lot, but they they certainly had their vision for what this project would and should be, the reason why we're doing this. And a right to have an opinion, for that matter. Like, each of them individually, like, was intimately involved in the, this phenomenon during this period of sports history. So, like, why wouldn't they have an opinion? Yeah, I mean, and and, and certainly the NBA had a proprietary right, right. to say we want to control this. They're the ones who shot the footage in the first place, so it's their footage, and they're opening their library to us on a blanket licensing deal. Then, you obviously, you have Jordan's team, and it was a really difficult... You talk about a tight, walking a tightrope I just mentioned. Walking the tightrope between whether or not this is a Michael Jordan documentary or a Bulls Dynasty documentary or a 97-98 Bulls documentary, I still don't know the answer to that because we, we went through so many permutations of what this thing was going to be. So I had fears going in. And like you said before, like I would never have said no. I remember I, I the first person I called when I first was told about this project and it was quote unquote offered because it was never like, do you want to do this job? Sign here and let's go. It was way more incremental than that. But the first person I called when I thought it might be a reality is Ezra Edelman, who I know I've known for years from HBO when we worked there. I mean, he's definitely the right, he's the right first call, that's for sure. Yeah, because I, I trust him implicitly on, on this stuff. And he comes from a real sports journalism background, but he's also a gifted filmmaker and storyteller. And we can get into the, what the difference is between storytelling and journalism, because I've certainly had to navigate that minefield in the last couple of months. But I said to him, what? Would you do this? So I was just assuming there were going to be so many stipulations from Jordan's team on what we could and could not ask. And basically what I came out of that conversation with Ezra thinking is, all right, if, if someone gives you an hour or two with Michael Jordan, no matter what is off the table, you do it. So right. I, I, I was expecting the worst and hoping for the best. But I'm thinking, you know what, even if this thing, even if it is a puff piece, I'll probably get killed for it. But just the opportunity to sit down with that man and ask him questions I've wanted to ask since I was eight years old. Let's do right. it. My fears, though, were unfounded about the material we'd be allowed to explore. And in the beginning, it was just 97, 98. They didn't even want to do original interviews. They said, Michael's been interviewed enough times. Anything you want to know, there's archival of this. There's thousands of hours of being interviewed. And also, they were of the opinion that people would be less honest now than they were in the moment. So they'd rather I use interviews from the moment archivally. When you say they, who do you mean Like at this stage? The NBA and um, okay. Michael's closest advisors. Um, Got it. Okay. His, his. And when did that start to break open? Because clearly that is not how it ended up. No, the good thing about it taking so long for this thing to come together on a corporate level was that I had a lot of FaceTime with these same people and we had a lot of meetings of what this thing was going to be. 
So if it happened like we got to do it yesterday, like the Fab Five happened, like go, go, go now, then they probably would have stuck to. I remember them specifically saying to me there was a breakfast when they said no baseball, we're not doing any baseball, we're not doing any. They said in a 10-hour doc, maybe 30 seconds of gambling. So I had these fears throughout and I just thought you have to keep on taking these punches and rolling with it and just kind of... When it came to a head, we could actually have that discussion, but I was going to plow forth no matter what they said. Now, luckily, I think just because everyone became such a collaborator on this and people realized that their voice was being heard and things that they wanted to include or or paths they wanted to go down were being listened to. I mean, I had those four entities in my ear, and if each of those entities has five people on them, which is conservative estimate, that's 20 voices in your ear. And that was over the course of two and a half years. So... I think once people started to trust that their opinion was being heard or that the notes they were giving were being addressed, even if they were in conflict sometimes, we had several times where the notes were more Michael, less Michael. And then we have to go back to the edit room and satisfy both parties. But it it was the same way that the incremental process of cultivating trust in the Fab Five guys and the coaches, certainly with the Bears documentary, they were skeptical that I was going to make this just a hit piece about the price of NFL tenures and concussions and long-term effects of pro football. And they didn't want to be a part of that. Of course, we have to mention that. So I can't go in saying we're not going to touch that. But at the same time, I can't tell them, you know, this is going to be just a hard hitting. It was hard hitting, but it's it's a very difficult road to hoe, put it that way. Well, the one thing, the one thing that I really admired, like you obviously got some criticism from most notably from Ken Burns about this sort of notion of like, well, you have the stakeholders involved in it and is it journalism? And I think you referenced that earlier. And unlike most people who get defensive about criticism, you were basically just like, yeah, man, Ken Burns is amazing. I've been a fan of his basically my entire career. And we called and chopped it up and he was super classy and I hope to get to continue to talk to him about these things. I wanted to acknowledge that sort of receipt of criticism and the sort of like the almost judo like, yeah, no, this this kind of conversation is good and it's only good for storytelling that we engage in debate in these things. Yeah, it, it was it was an honor to get a phone call from Ken Burns doing what I do for a living. The guy is, you know, there might be one head on the Mount Rushmore of documentary filmmaker. If there were one in the modern era, it would be him. You, know, you have, I mean, there's other people, Errol Morris and Maisels and people like that who I admire, but Ken Burns is literally one of the few people who's the reason why I do what I do. So I, I actually, um, I didn't see the criticism first. I got some texts about it and people were saying like oh, i don't listen to ken burns i was like oh god what happened because at that point like there were so many stories about the show and we were still doing the show so i wasn't really able to pay right. attention to normally you're done and then you can see all the media onslaught afterwards but we were still in the trenches completing seven eight nine ten and then i saw the comments and very soon after maybe a day or two after i was on a walk in my neighborhood and i got a, a call from a number in new hampshire that i didn't recognize and i said hello and, and he said jason it's ken burns and he immediately explained that he was calling not to apologize for what he said, but the, the context in, in which it was published. Yeah. And I think his point was that in his world, which is a PBS world, his quote was that he would never, 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 never participate in a project where the subject had any editorial control. And his point to me was that he works in a world where it's unfathomable. He was doing a doc about Emerson or Thoreau or someone, I forget who he said, but there was a distant relative that was an underwriter and they had to leave the project in order for the project to go ahead. That's how stringent they are with these stipulations. So it was just a really good talk. And, and he said, you know, I, I better than anybody know what it's when you're asking people to set aside 500 minutes. I know I know what it takes to do something like that. I know uh, what a big ask it is of an audience to do that. So when I do get the time, I look forward to watching it and I've heard from people 
people who are friends of mine who I respect that they liked it a lot. So I just wanted to clear it. It was just, just a really classy, lovely thing for, for the guy to do because it did really hurt me. And it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't mad or, or um, defiant or it hurt me just on a level where like you want your idols to, to if you find out yeah. they watched your stuff, you want them to respect the work. And it, it came across that he didn't respect it. And then, so for him to clear that up was a huge relief. But yeah, the, as far as the criticism goes, I think almost all criticism is valid because if you don't like something, and it's not necessarily the, the fault of the, the filmmaker or the writer or the artist. It's just not your cup of tea. So there's plenty of people who had a problem with the, with the, the timeline jumps in, in the doc. They're not wrong. If that's not how they like to consume something, they have every right to say, wasn't for me. I, it was too confusing. I didn't understand it. They're not wrong. And it's, it's, if there's fault, it's my fault as a director. You know, if 100% of the people said the timeline's too confusing, I don't know what's going on in this, I'd be like, all right, I screwed up. But anyone who, who luckily, I think they're in the minority, but if they are confused by it, they're not wrong to be confused by it. Or, or Ken Burns isn't wrong to say it's not journalism. And I do journalism and, and this is not journalism or good history, as he put it. Everyone's entitled to their opinion because I've certainly had my opinion on works of art that I've seen throughout my entire life. So I think you, you have to accept that that's going to be part of it when you get into this business. When people then start ripping on things that are personal, then it becomes like, okay, well, if you don't like... How, how dare you be emotionally mature, sir? How dare you? Oh, man. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the non-chronological structure of the documentary because I did want to talk about the specific construction of The Last Dance, which I think is really incredible. I'm curious how you sort of came to decide to tell the story of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in this non-chronological way, because I think it subverts a lot of our expectations of what that kind of documentary is going to be. So I'm curious how that sort of decision evolved and evolved through the editing process as well. Well, the decision was partly made for us at the beginning of the process because they said that the backbone of this chronologically, the bedrock is the 97-98 season and this film that's been on Earth that no one's ever seen before. That is the selling point. That's the feature of this documentary is that there's all this film that no one's ever seen behind the scenes of only that season. So the doc has to be about that season. And of course, if you have access to these people, you want to tell far more than just that season. You want to tell the story of the dynasty and how it came to be. So the analogy that I would use with our editors and our producers is that the highway is the 97-98 season. And we get off at exits to tell little stories, but we have to get back on that highway. And these exits are going to be in chronological order as we go, but you have to get back on the highway. So I used to tell them that you can stop to eat, but you can't stay overnight. You have to get back on that highway or else you're doing a different dock. If you're staying overnight somewhere and you're driving through the back roads of that exit, you're way too far away from 97, 98. There's several backstories we could have done much more on. Tony Kukoc deserves his own documentary. Phil Jackson deserves his own documentary. Steve Kerr deserves his own, deserves the presidency. But he, he, yeah, yeah, I mean, right. at this point, Kerr, Kerr, Kerr deserves multiple 10 episode series. But it's we stunning. had to get back on to that 97, 98 timeline just to keep people based in what this thing was about. It's called The Last Dance. That's the name of the final season. So we're telling the story of a dynasty through the lens of that season. But that highway is the analogy that I tried to really. Um, drill into everyone. We touched on this a bit earlier, but we have to talk about the music supervision in the show, which is yes, just phenomenal. I'm 
sure you've seen the many Spotify playlists that people have recreated so lovingly. But you mentioned that music is one of your sort of three foundational sort of arts things. So I'm curious what the the process was like as you're selecting tracks to accompany The Last Dance and figuring out what songs to pair with which moments in the documentary. Well, it's a playground for me because that the parallel arcs of these three things I'm about to explain are, are so perfectly laid out for me because so 1984, that's that same year that I go to visit Doug Flutie. I'm, I'm eight years old. Michael Jordan comes into the league as a rookie. And it's also the first time that I hear Curtis Blow and Run DMC and Fat Boys and, and, and the early hip hop artists of my childhood. The arc of Michael's rise to greatness, the arc of hip hop's rise to cultural significance on a global scale, and the arc of me from third grader to college graduate is all on the exact same plane. So when I think back to these years, if we're going to cover 86 and his 63-point game, if we're going to cover 89 and the shot over Elo, if we're going to cover 92 on the shrug, if you name a year, I can tell you what I was listening to on my boombox in my room at that time. And it was always hip hop. So if I was a big Motley Crue guy or something like that, maybe I would have put, maybe a different filmmaker would have put different music to this. It was also a playground for me now to put this old school music to these highlights because at the time, that's not what the NBA was putting to these highlights. So when you had like the seminal videotape of my youth was NBA superstars and they had, you know, like 10 players and they each had their own song and it was highlight reel and, you know, Larry Bird was small town. Michael Jordan was Take My Breath Away from, from Top Gun. And it was these <laughs> slow motion, really slow dissolve, slow motion. And, you know, back then, like slow motion, they didn't have slow motion cameras. So they just slowed the video down, which makes it look yeah. even worse. I wanted something that was bang, 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 like on the cuts. The way that I felt when I watched him play was certainly not like rock ballad. It was LL Cool J. It was I'm Bad. It, it, it was yeah. this music that was taking over the culture and this guy that was taking over the league. That's what I wanted to hear. So to be able to, it's almost like getting in a time machine and saying like, yeah, you know what? Instead of his rookie year montage being cut to some like stock cut of music that they showed on ESPN or, or CBS or whatever they showed at that time, let's use Rakim. Let's use I Ain't No Joke from, from Eric B. and Rakim's first album. And Rakim, Rakim was taking over rap in 85 the same way that Michael was taking over the NBA. So let's show those highlights. So it became an exercise in me just thinking back to what my favorite songs of that era were and using them for those particular eras. But it was really interesting because like, I think you and I are about the same age. I'm about, I think, two years younger than you. And watching the Jordan clips that I have seen dozens, if not hundreds of times in my life over that music, they do hit different. Like it, it is notable. And I think that it's not people, a lot of people had that experience, though I wouldn't necessarily have recognized the fact that the NBA during that era was not embracing hip hop yet. Though obviously now the league and hip hop are basically completely, I mean, literally you've got you know all stars dropping diss tracks about each other. So I feel like they fully embrace the music at this point. The other thing that I think is amazing about 2020, I, I made this joke on Twitter a couple of days ago. I feel like maybe other than Bong Joon-ho, Jordan's having like the only good 2020 of anybody. And I think it's in large part because like obviously The Last Dance has sort of sort of returned him to public consciousness in like this very positive way. You managed to vanquish the crying Jordan meme and replace it with the laughing Jordan meme, which is no small feat. Um, the whole, and that was personal to me phenomenon. I, 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 what does it feel like as a storyteller to like, you know, set out to make what is maybe the impossible documentary to make, which is the Jordan thing. And then having it permeate the culture as this one has, like, are you aware of it? And how does it feel? Like, are you still sort of, you know, digging yourself out of having to make a doc during the pandemic? Like, like, 
What is the what is the experience of that like? Definitely still digging myself out. Just starting to get the itch to have ideas for new things and all that because it was it was so exhausting um, in finishing this thing. And that goes for the whole team. I mean, no one left their apartments. They wouldn't have left. My quarantine life was very similar to our lives since last fall working on this project. It was at least six days a week. We're, we're in dark edit rooms almost every day. If we weren't in an edit room, I was on a plane somewhere to go interview somebody. So around the time that this was resonating on a global scale, those first few weeks, Yes, it was thrilling and gratifying, but also we were just as hard at work finishing 7, 8, 9, and 10 during those weeks. So it was really fun to check after the shows aired and see what the memes were. Stuff that I never, that may be the most fun part of the process for me is stuff that we never thought would resonate with people or we had forgotten and just taken it for granted. Of course, the first time we saw John Michael Wozniak, the security guard, we were like, who is that guy? Where's that air? Right. <laughs> And then we got to know him personally, and we got to know that he is a family member of Michael's, and he's beloved by that entire team at the Jordan Brands. And so it wasn't new to us. That, that was actually like, in an ironic way, I was scared to death on April 19th when that, it, when it premiered, it was clear that it was going to do a big number because there was nothing else on. And, and, and it, it seemed to be, right. I think it was trending on Twitter the day before, certainly like the morning of. And I was like, wow, so this is, a lot of people are going to watch this. And yeah. there's a good chance, there's a, always the chance that people are not going to like it. I had seen and our team had been watching that first episode in various forms for 15 months. No oh, joke yeah. was funny to us anymore. Nothing was new. Every cut of music was old to us. It was boring. I could lip sync that episode right now. But right. to see it through the eyes of people who were never seeing it, including family members and friends of mine, I, I just remember thinking at the outset, like, we got to get people through the first four episodes. The first four episodes are kind of boring. And then it, it, in my mind, it starts, it starts to get interesting. So when people were saying they enjoyed the first and second ones, that was a huge relief. But it's part of the irony is that you can't enjoy it because you're in the eye of the storm. Right. I've never been on, on that side of, of a, a cultural zeitgeist before. And now it's gone. It feels like it was, I forget, someone tweeted last Sunday, Hey, hard to believe that the last dance premiered one year ago tonight. <laughs> and that's what it feels like, that. like. And it feels like that, especially for me. Like this is this is gone. I still have, you know, I always write thank you letters to everybody at the end and, and mail those. I can't even get myself to write those yet because I'm still kind of like dusting myself off. But it certainly feels like it's way in the past. But it was such an incredible experience because I experienced those Sunday nights as well in a bit of a different way because I'd seen the episodes already. But my family and I would do a Zoom call every night before and after the shows on Sundays. And because normally they're seeing this stuff, I'm bringing rough cuts home and showing my brothers and my parents. Right. And we weren't able to do that, obviously, because everyone's stuck in their home. So it was just I should have I wish I documented my own experience better, just journaled, you know, so that I can look back on this thing in, in two, five, ten years and remember how this felt. I mean, yeah, you won't be able to, I mean, but you'll be able to, like, the tweets will be there forever, man. Just get the archive because there's a lot, there's a lot of good material out there. You mentioned that you're starting to think about the next thing and without giving away anything, is there a sports story that you're just like, how has no one done this yet? Like, is there one that you're just like the holy grail? that for whatever reason you think might be even impossible? It's not necessarily one that, that I would choose to do right now. There, there are certainly teams that I think deserve the same sort of treatment and exploration that the 85 Bears and the 90s Bulls and the Fab Five. When you think of the 86 Mets, the early 90s Cowboys, these yeah. are, Fab Five fell into my lap. 
And then I pitched the 85 Bears and the 90s Bulls fell into my lap. So then it became like, wow, I am the luckiest person on the planet because I'm doing the quote unquote definitive stories about these and the teams that are the most indelible to my generation. If you name one right. pro football team, it was the 85 Bears. You name one basketball team, it was the Fab Five. And certainly the Bulls yeah. and that, maybe in all of sports. So I would love to see a series or a doc about those teams and, and investigating the characters on those teams. I mean, the, the, the 90s Cowboys, you could do... T- I was going to say the 90s Cowboys, that's, that's, uh, I, I that's one's a lot. That That is like uh, <laughs> the last dance meets Pablo Escobar meets, uh, you know, I don't even want to say the third one, but there's, there's a lot of stuff to mind. <laughs> there's a lot so, there. I my my focus right now or my instinct right now is to go a lot smaller. I always try to make these stories smaller than they are. We talked about de-iconizing and demystifying people. I just think sports is such an incredible lens through which to view society. And I know that sounds trite, but it it really is. I mean, I, I when people say they're not sports fans. I kind of feel bad for them because they don't get to experience the joy and the community and the camaraderie that I feel as a fan with my family and with, you know, I'm wearing a Boston shirt right now. And if someone saw a Red Sox hat across the street, they'd give me a what's up, you know, not in Boston yeah. here. But there's just so, there's so many moments of joy and of community throughout my life. I don't care if the Celtics win the championship because the Celtics are then the best team in the NBA. I care because I can go home and watch these games with my dad and my brothers and take my nephews to a game and experience it with them. It's all about how we experience it and how it brings us closer together as a family and community. So those are the kind of stories that I'm looking at is how sports have the power to do that. And and maybe now is a better time than ever. I don't know what's going to come of these times now, but I can promise you that sports on a professional or an amateur level are going to play a role in, in healing the wounds that we're experiencing right now. Completely agree. Do you have a favorite sports movie? I have so many. I think Field of Dreams is, is, is I saw that with my dad. And I was just, that's around the time I was 12 or 13. So I was really obsessed with with the filmmaking aspect of it. How did they get all of those cars there? And I found out the story. Do you know the story to that? No. The last shot so. of Field of Dreams when there's like a, a, a sea of cars. Oh, like yeah. That. The town where they shot that in Iowa, uh, they had a barbecue. This is in the, the director's commentary on the DVD. So I, I may mess up a few of the details here, but the gist of it is that they had a, a barbecue for like a thank you to the town that, that the production put on. And the mayor said, is there anything else that you need that we could give you? And the director said, well, there's a scene in the end where there's a sea of thousands of cars descending upon this one field. It would be cool if everyone in the town could get in their car and drive up so we could actually shoot that. So everybody gets there in the town. They all get in line and they have three shots to do this because they they have to go up in a chopper. There's no drones or anything. They go up in a chopper, open the door, and they're filming out the side of the open chopper. And the, the, the director is up there and he is radioing down to the local DJ. And everyone in the car is listening to the local DJ for their cue as to when to drive. And the, and it's sunset, so they're, they're losing light. They can only get it three times. The first two times, they screw it up. So now they're down to one more shot to nail this. And by the way, Kevin Costner and his dad, the catcher, have to be playing catch flawlessly on the field below them this entire time. So the first 30 cars drive in, and the rest of the cars, is thousands of cars, are just flicking their headlights to make it look like there's a bunch of cars moving. So the radio DJ says, all right, everyone flick your headlights. And that's how they got that shot. So those are the, I've lost, obviously the the proliferation of technology makes it easier for us to watch on Netflix or Amazon. I don't know where to go to get director's commentary anymore. And that's why I bought so many DVDs. I would much rather watch the commentary than, I used to watch a movie and then immediately watch the commentary afterward. And I don't know where to go to get that anymore because it's little stories like that that I'm so fascinated by still. 
the pro tip here would be just to email Kate Hagen. She can probably tell you where to track that shit down. That's why we need physical media, though. I, I feel like it's a major flaw of all streaming services that they haven't realized how much great supplemental content can be made and live on streaming services in addition to the movie itself. Because, yeah. Like, The Last Dance is coming out domestically on Netflix in July. I would I don't know if anyone would want to listen to me drone on, but there's so many stories about behind the scenes of how this thing was made and days of the interview when, when guys showed up and what happened during the interviews. I would love to just sit there. You know what? One of the funniest movies I've ever seen isn't even a movie. It's the director's commentary with Redman and Method Man of How High. It's incredible. I, I know what I'm. I know what I'm doing later this week. Uh, <laughs> that sounds incredible. If you ever wanted to watch How High and sit next to Red and Meth smoking weed, making jokes, <laughs> listen to the director's commentary. You can hear them eating and smoking weed. I am sold. It starts out, that movie starts out with, there's a shot of a guy going to buy weed from Method Man and he opens up this slot on the door and is like, who is it? And the first thing you hear on the commentary is Method Man saying, this dude's breath smelled like a sack of assholes. That's the first note that he gives in the movie. So I highly recommend not watching How High, but watching How High with the commentary. You heard it here, folks. All right, so we're going we're gonna to round the corner to the end here. Some rapid fire questions. First one, and we may have already just heard the answer. What's a movie that everyone else thinks is terrible that you will defend forever? Although I would argue that How High is actually a very good comedy. Yeah, How High is great satire. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah agree. Yeah, I don't know that, I don't know that that's that unpopular. I don't think it qualifies. What we're looking for here is a film that is like, you know, under 20, under 20. 25 on Rotten Tomatoes, but you're just like, yeah, everybody else is wrong. This is great. I go hard for the like apocalyptic cataclysmic movie. So any, and there was, there was a, a string of them that came out a few years in a row, like the deep impact. Okay. War of the Worlds, I don't think was, was received that well, but I love movies like that. Maybe it's because my biggest fear when I was a kid was nuclear war. I used to stay up worrying about nuclear war because I came up. We are that, we are that generation. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. I thought that at any moment there's a nuclear bomb would be dropped on us and it would be all over. So any any cataclysmic apocalyptic movie like that, just to see how even even Independence Day or, or movies like that, I will I will always drop the remote and watch some of those. Can you pinpoint a single movie moment that has stayed with you longer than any others? That can be a shot, a scene, a cut, an ending beat, anything that's really resonated with you throughout your life. I think that that freeze frame at the end of the cold open of Pulp Fiction when that music kicks in. I mean, that to me was, it was the power of, first of all, the acting and the writing was was astonishing. Then the editing, I, I don't think I'd ever seen a freeze frame like that stylized editing like that. And then for that music crash in there, it was the power of what music can do. Because it's just titles. All you're seeing is rolling opening titles then. But I was so, I could have like ran through the wall in the theater at that point. And there's no action even going on, but it's just perfect filmmaking. I, I, I remember, I, I vividly remember that. That's a good one. That's an answer. So we asked this question as a sort of, it's a two-parter inspired by Sidney Pollock's statement that he was only interested in making movies about two subjects, love and war, because those are the only two things that we really haven't made any progress in understanding better as humanity. So favorite movie about love, favorite movie about war. I think love, I mean, it's not a traditional love story, but Feel the Dreams was about love. Feel the Dreams was, was about love of baseball. It was about love of your parents. I never will forget this, this is another one that's indelible, was, was watching that movie at the end and his dad asked him, is there a heaven? And he looks up at the porch and he sees his wife and his daughter on the swing in this perfect farmhouse. 
And he says, I think so. I mean, that it's not a love story like a saccharine sweet love story, but it is about the love that we feel for family members and the love that we feel for, for one another. So aside from loving baseball, too, but Burt Lancaster's speech in that about the smell of the grass, the thrill of the grass and, and the love of that sport, wrapping your arms around third base after you uh, head first slide. So that maybe not the perfect love story, but my, no, my, but that's a great answer. Yeah. War. Glory is one of my top five favorite movies ever. Another great answer. And I think that it's not known for its battles scenes but you know it was educational because it's obviously it's a true story the acting Denzel and that's the first time I was really exposed to Denzel as an actor and the scene this is another one from the director's commentary is that when he's got that tear coming down his his eye when he's being whipped after leaving after running away he said that he was thinking of his ancestors and what they went through when they were actually being whipped and that this had actually this it wasn't lights camera action this actually had happened to people with with his blood but i was just blown away by that movie when i saw it and it's not you know it's not machine guns there's no tanks there's no uh it's not an apocalypse now kind of like choppers coming into napalm village kind of thing but i just love the humanity of that war movie okay i'm going to take us home with our final question which we ask everyone if you could pick one movie to screen for the entirety of planet Earth simultaneously, what movie would you choose? No pressure. What's the what's the objective? It can be any objective you like, but I love that you asked that question. Yeah, I think the objective is revealed through your answer. Oh, touche. <laughs> I'm not going to go, I mean, I'm not going to go with like The Godfather or, or like some of my favorite movies. I think that if there's a time for now, especially with, with what's on everybody's mind, a movie that stayed with me so much was To Kill a Mockingbird. And obviously, you know, the book came first, but it's one of the few examples where I think the movie was better than the great book is the great movie. And when I remember when I read that, and when, I'm sorry, sorry, when I saw that being blown away, and that was also shot in black and white. They didn't have to shoot that in black and white at that moment. But yeah. just the, the tight shots of Scouts, the little memento she had, and the doll that was Boo Radley, the beginning of that, and the, this marble that goes along, and that marble clicks on another marble, and the music kicks in, and boom, you're in the movie, you're in the story. And the lessons that were conveyed in that movie, and, and again, the humanity. To me, it comes down to all, I, I always tell our editors, think smaller, 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 smaller. What's the moment in a conversation that conveys something? much broader and you know the kids not understanding racism the kids not understanding the scene when when they're guarding Jim in the in the um, in the jail and the townspeople come with the, with the pitchforks and Scout recognizes that her dad is a brave man and a great man because he's sitting there with a lamp and a newspaper and he's not going to let them get at this guy. I remember my mom choking up watching that. And a lot of the memories that I have of watching movies is if my parents were moved by it, I was moved by it too. And again, that comes back to the love and the connection um, of watching movies with people. But I, I just remember I was watching something that was much bigger than myself as a kid when I saw that. Love it. And we're out. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much, Jason. From Luminary, the Blacklist podcast is a production of the Blacklist and Ninth Planet Audio. Our executive producers are me, Franklin Leonard, Kate Hagan, Hansani, and Jimmy Miller. Gabrielle Horton is our lead producer. Nicholas Patel composed our theme music, and this episode was edited and mixed by Kevin Liu. You can find me on Twitter at Franklin Leonard, at Franklin J. Leonard on Instagram. Kate is that Hagan girl, girl, G-R-R-L, on both. And we, the Blacklist, are the, T-H-E, B-L-C-K-L-S-T.